So our Bible reading for today is Hebrews 9, verses 3 to 5. It's in page, on page 850 in your pew Bible and probably up there as well. So, behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Now over to Drew, who will discuss in detail. (laughs) Too much detail. All right, thank you, Pat. We've been exploring how we can move closer, closer to God, and ultimately as we discover how to move closer to God, we also will be equipped to move closer to one another. There is within each and every one of us a deep, um, deep desire for oneness, oneness with ourselves, a oneness with God, a oneness with one another, because humans have built within them a hunger for intimacy. There is a desire that ultimately is spiritual at the deepest core of who you are and who I am because we were made for that that oneness, that connectivity. And God's word reveals that this search for intimacy is a part of our quest for understanding our identity, who God made us to be, and it's a reflection of being made in the image of God. Of God. God, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son live in perfect unity with one another. Out of that communion, out of that connectivity between the three persons in one being of God, we were made in His image and we were made to share that union. And so what the scripture does is it shows us how God has provided a way for you and I to come back into union with God because we've been separated by our sin and by our rebellion. And as we've been exploring this theme, we've looked at different people in the Old Testament and we've looked at Jesus to a certain degree so far in the New Testament and we've been exploring the tabernacle. Now, you may be asking, what does a tent from 4,000 years ago have to do with me knowing God more intimately? And I hope as you've begun to, to see, if you've been with us for a while, I hope you've begun to see that what God is doing is he's communicating his heart, his holiness, his love with us through the things that he commanded us to do and commanded his people to do, especially in the tabernacle. And so today, we're going to to flesh that out a little bit more, and we're going to look specifically at the Ark of the Covenant. But I want to remind you, just to to get a sense of it, I want to, you have in your bulletins a picture of the layout of the the furniture inside the the tabernacle, and we can put it up on on the screen as well. This is the whole thing, and inside the holy place, which is the tent itself, the tabernacle, there were several pieces of furniture. And the three that are most significant 
um, in that is that you had the lampstand, which represented the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. You had the table of showbread, which represents the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. And then inside the most holy place, you had the Ark of the Covenant. But right in the middle of those three was the altar of incense. And the altar of incense pointed to Jesus as our high priest, but it also points to you. Because you see, God designed for you and I to live in perfect communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so he placed the one thing that existed in the tabernacle that points to you and me right in the middle of those representations of the Godhead. Because that's how he wants us to live. That's the connectivity, the intimacy God desires for us. And as we explore this, we discover more about who God is and how we can learn to live united or in communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up right where um, Pat read for us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3. It tells us, and in the beginning part of that, it says, behind the second curtain was another section called the most holy place. So this is going into the place that was the very dwelling place of God, where his um, fire, his Shekinah dwelt. And it was incredibly holy, it was incredibly powerful, and as we discover, it could be lethal if you were to go into God's presence without proper preparation of your own heart and without atonement for our sin. And it tells us that there was this curtain. And so we're going to begin to look at this veil of separation. In Leviticus chapter 10, um, we discover just how important this veil of separation was. Because the veil of separation is a reminder that God is absolutely pure. He is completely holy. He is completely righteous. In fact, the scripture says that he is a consuming fire. Oftentimes, because of the the goodness of the grace of the gospel, we can lose our sense of awe and wonder and fear of God. He is perfect, and he has said that he cannot abide with sin. And because I'm a sinner, that puts me in a dangerous place because I deserve judgment. And so God put this veil there to protect humanity, to protect the priests, But I want to show you a passage of scripture that that illustrates just how God is this consuming fire in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. And and it begins with a story about Nabad and Abihu. Aren't you glad you don't have any kids named either one of those? I, you know, I, I, I tried to get Becky to help, you know, name one of our sons Nabad, but she wouldn't let me do it. So, um... Maybe a grandchild. Anyway, Nabab and Abihu were sons of Aaron. And so they were priests in Israel. They had a very specific and, and special role. They were the ones that God had commissioned because of their lineage, because of the tribe they came from, because they were sons of Aaron, that they would be able to go into the holy place and the most holy place and be able to, um, to serve, to burn incense, to light the candles, and the high priest would then go into the holy of holies. But God had specific rules about how you were to do it. And here's what it says. It says, now Nabad and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer 
and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In other words, what they had done, we looked at um, last week, we looked at the altar of incense and remember that it was, there was incense and there, there was exact um, requirements that God gave for the, for the incense about how it was to be made. And even the fire that was used was fire that had to originally come from the altar out in the courtyard. The coals that were burnt there were representative of that which had been purified by the sacrifice of the offering. But these two guys, they got it in their minds that they could worship God as the how they wanted him to, or excuse me, how they wanted to. And this is the danger for all of us because the human temptation is that we tend to remake God in our own image rather than honor him for who he truly is. And this is what was happening with them. They came up with their own plan, their own recipe for incense, and they just did their own way of fire and went right into God's presence thinking they were okay. They were gonna show everyone else that they could do it their way. And here's what happened to them. And a fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. This is why the scripture says God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is pure. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. You see, God's intent for us is for us to be transformed by his work within us. And we should never take him lightly. On the other hand, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was for God to dwell with his people. And so he's provided a way for you and I to come into intimacy. That veil was there for protection, to keep people from being consumed by the holiness of God. But something amazing and miraculous happened when Jesus Christ was on the cross. If you remember the story when Jesus is there and and you read through the narrative in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you put together the different things that Jesus had said, there's a point when he's on the cross after he had been there for three hours where he says it is finished. And what he means is it is complete, that atonement has been made. And then he, he says these last words in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 46. And now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness on the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain from the temple was torn in two, and and, uh, Mark tells us it was torn from top to bottom. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and having said that, he breathed his last. Jesus opened up the way for each and every one of us to safely go into the presence of God. When we put our faith in him and what he has done on the cross, God welcomes us to boldly come before him. This was amazing. To the the Jews, that separation had been incredibly uh, a powerful reminder of the holiness of God. But God, who is perfectly holy, is not just holy. He is also loving and gracious. And what we need to remember is we need to keep all the attributes of God properly in balance. Because if we err on one side or the other, we will drift away from the Lord and we'll begin to remake God in our own image, in our own likeness, rather than for who he truly is. 
And so Jesus Christ brought down that curtain and opened the way for us to the very presence of the Father. Now, I want to show you a glimpse of of what the Ark of the Covenant, which was beyond this veil, um, looked like. It's, It's a representation. It's probably not accurate, but it'll give you a feel. And so we're going to play a little video behind it while I read the description of God's instruction about making of the Ark of the Covenant. So let's go ahead and start that, the video. Bezalel made an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length. Just a reminder, a cubit is half a meter. And a cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on each one side and two rings on the other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. And he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces one to another towards the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Okay, so here's a picture of what that ark looked like and that it was a a beautiful representation, a pattern of what God's throne room and God's presence was like. And what you'll see is that there's a theme. Whenever we're in the presence of God within his throne room, there will be the presence of these cherubim. And we're going to look at those in in a little bit. Um, But they're an important part of the throne room, of the presence of God. So what is the meaning? What was the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? Well, um, ark, it's kind of confusing in English because when we think of ark, the first thing most of us, if you grew up in church, the first thing you think of is Noah's ark, right? A boat. Well, it's obviously not a boat. The real word is actually, if you were to um, translate it directly from uh, scripture, it would be chest or box. It was was made to be this, this box, this container, because God was going to put some very special things inside of the ark of the covenant. And the most important part of what the Ark of the Covenant represented was it represented God's promise. The word covenant is an agreement um, where two parties make an agreement, and in the the Scripture, that covenant was sealed with, with blood. That's what made it absolutely binding. And in the, this case... Because God is the one making the covenant, he is the one who chooses to keep the covenant, whether or not you and I do. He chooses, because of who he is, to keep his covenant. And this was a reminder that God was a promise-keeping God. So that whenever Israel saw the covenant, because, or excuse me, saw the Ark of the Covenant, because it would sometimes go out in battle before the army, they would be reminded that God is a God who keeps his promises. And he was a God who had made a commitment to them. And what it should represent to you and I is that God is a God who's made a commitment 
to you. The theme that comes out in the scripture is, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is wedding vows. And the greatest picture that we have in modern society of a covenant is the covenant of marriage, where two people become one because they have covenanted together. They have promised themselves before God to one another to live as husband and wife in purity and in love. That's the picture of the ark. It was a reminder that God had married himself to his people. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that that cool? I mean, yes, he's this consuming holy fire who loves you so much he wants to marry you. Pretty amazing. But unfortunately, humanity repeatedly broke the covenant. Israel broke the covenant You and I have broken the covenant, at least maybe I shouldn't condemn you. I have broken my covenant, my promises to God more times than I can count. And yet God keeps his word over and over and over again. The ark also points ultimately to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that because what is really cool is what's inside the ark of the covenant, or at least alongside of it, are all representations of essentially the plan or God's work of salvation. Because um, inside the, oops, sorry. Inside the covenant, or Ark of the Covenant, there were at least three items. Um, Eventually, I think there were were a total of five. Um, Because I believe Moses' scroll um, of Deuteronomy eventually ended up in the Ark of the Covenant. But the contents of the Ark tells us that in the scripture that there were the tablets of the law. And and actually, I believe both sets of tablets of the law were eventually placed into the Ark of the Covenant. Um, But what's significant is the broken tablets. Remember, Moses went up upon the mountain and he received where God, with his own finger, inscribed into tablets of stone Uh, or perhaps tablets of sapphire, there's one translation that would render it that way, his commands for his people, his expectations of how they were to live in their covenant relationship with him. And while Moses was on the mountain, the people rebelled, and and they they, um, kind of cast off all of their restraints and all their senses, and they made an idol and worshiped a, a god that they made out of the image of a cow which, you know, to us just sounds incredibly weird and strange. But before you get, you start beating up on Israel, you've made idols out of all kinds of things that are even more stupid, just so you know. I mean, if I'm gonna be really, really honest, if you think through your own heart and life, there are things that you have honored in God's place, or at least before the Lord, that are worse than a cow. I have. If I was to place my pride, isn't that worse than worshiping an idol of a cow or my lust or American football? <laughs> that one's just, that one's definitely worse than a cow. Anyway, we, we all have this tendency to worship other things because we're made to worship and we're selfish. And so God took the tablets that 
Um, Moses, when he came down the mountain, he saw the rebellion of the people and he threw them down and they broke. And the scripture tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that those tablets were placed in the ark as a testimony. And also, then God had Moses come back up on the mountain and rewrite those same, same laws and those were placed in the covenant because God keeps his word. But the first thing that we see is that there was this testimony of the fact that all of us have sinned. We've all broken God's law. That's why it says in the New Testament, all have sinned and fall short. In other words, we couldn't keep that covenant of the glory of God. And inside the ark was a reminder, first of all, that we had broken the covenant, but that God kept his. The two went together. And what they pointed to was ultimately a new covenant. I want you to see something really beautiful in Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. And, and by the way, if you want to read about the tablets and how they were placed in the, in the ark, that's Deuteronomy 10, verses 1 through 10. Um, and there's other passages that, that deal with it as well. But here's the new covenant that God promises he says in Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, and I will give them, that's speaking to those who would trust in him, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now I want you to think about the imagery that, God is speaking through Ezekiel. Why does he say it's a heart of stone? It's a heart of stone because it's not got life in it. And it's a picture, I believe, of these broken tablets that are within us, that you and I, our identity, because when we're outside of Christ, our heart is like stone because we cannot keep God's commands. We don't have the life in us to be able to really obey. But God says, I'm gonna take out that heart of stone that, that part of you that cannot honor the covenant, that cannot honor me, and I'm gonna give you a new heart that is filled with life. I'm gonna make a new promise to you, and I'm making it through my son. He's the one who's gonna give you that new heart and that new life. So the, the inside the Ark of the Covenant were these tablets that represented God's promise and how we all fall short of keeping it. But there was something else. Another item that was probably just outside the ark because it may not have fit, and it was a staff that budded or a rod that budded. And it's a symbol of God's authority over all life. The staff of Aaron, the high priest, um, was required to be placed at least alongside of the ark. Now, I have, I have a beautiful staff here that I stole from Alex's wood in the back closet, and this is what it would have been like to a certain degree, except it was made probably out of Achaia wood uh, or possibly out of almond wood, and the scripture tells us that this rod, this staff, was very, very important um, because God chose to, to make it an ongoing witness to the people of his authority. And so there's, there's a story that goes along with this. If you have your Bibles, um, you can look at this in Numbers chapter 
17, verses 1 through 11, and it's, a, it's kind of a long passage, so I'm going to paraphrase it, but I want you to read it, and you can read along while I'm talking, um, because reading God's word is more important than listening to me, but I, I want to kind of give you the summary. What had happened in Israel was there was a, a fight over leadership. The people had gotten frustrated with Moses and with Aaron. And so there was a division where one group was becoming um, uh, in competition with Aaron and Moses, and they were seeking to take control and leadership. I know it's hard to believe that this would ever happen with a group of humans, but politics became a reality in Israel. And there was a battle between (laughs) at least two different parties, and it was ugly. And God said, here's how I'm going to settle it. I want you to take the staves of all of the leaders of all the tribes. So there's 12 different tribes, and so there's 12 different staffs. And I want you to place them in the tabernacle. And the one that I cause to bring forth buds, that is the person whose staff, whose authority I recognize. And so what they did is they had their names um, and the signs of their tribe written on the staff, and they placed him inside. And then over, overnight, then the next day, Moses went in and retrieved the staves, and the staff of Aaron not only budded, but it had blossoms and it had fruit on it. Now I want you to think about it. It was a staff just like this. Can you imagine what a miracle it would be if this brought forth fruit? Because what is this? It's dead right? It's a picture of the resurrection. And not only did it bring forth fruit, it brought forth almond blossoms and almond fruit. And if you guys have been with us for a little bit, the almond is a picture um, because of what it means and because of the sound of the name, it is a picture of the resurrection. It is the first tree to come back to life every spring in the Middle East to this day. It's, it is, it's the watching tree. It's watching for spring. It's watching for life. And so this picture was of the resurrection that God could bring dead things to life under his authority. That's what this staff represented. And it's an incredible promise because God's authority can bring dead things to life in us as well. And most importantly, God's authority brought Jesus Christ back to life. He who offered himself as the sacrifice for us, according to God's power, his authority, he brought it back to life. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15 says. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That rod was a reminder that God was the one who truly was sovereign and was in control. But not only was he in control, not only was the authority, but he had the power to transform anything. Even that which is dead, he can bring back to life. Do you see how that points to our intimacy with God? Even though we have a heart of stone, we've broken God's rules, he can take that dead heart in you and me and resurrect it so that it not only is alive again, but it is fruitful, it is beautiful, it is filled with life. Well, the third thing that was there in in the ark 
was a jar of manna. And manna was the bread that came down out of heaven that supplied um, all of, of Israel during the 40 years in which they were wandering in the wilderness. It was a miraculous supply of bread that had a taste like honey. And God chose to put in the ark a jar, a golden jar of manna there to be a reminder that God is our provider. He is not only the authority, He is not only sovereign and in control and and the one who keeps his promises. He's not only a consuming fire, but he is the one who faithfully provides. And it was a picture that ultimately pointed to the bread of life himself, Jesus Christ. That whole imagery that we read about in the New Testament where Jesus says, I am the bread which came down out of heaven that he talks about in John chapter six. If you were um, a Jew sitting there listening to him, you had been thinking about that jar inside the ark because it was preserved. The bread that came down out of heaven. Here's what Jesus said specifically in John 6, verses 47 through 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is what we celebrate in Lord's Supper and communion. It's a reminder that God is our provision. That every need that you and I have, beginning with our desperate need for salvation, he has provided. He will supply all of our needs because he loves us. The holiness of God, the authority of God, and the grace of God all come together there in the Ark of the Covenant, and they're underneath something else. It's called the mercy seat. That mercy seat there with the cherubim, those angel beings, like beings, that are over the seat, there, that was the place where the blood of atonement, of sacrifice, of substitute, had to be placed once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the scripture tells us that Jesus, our high priest, the one who gave himself for us, went and basically put his own blood on the true mercy seat in heaven. Now, here's what's so cool about that. When you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and want to follow him as your Lord, when God sees you, he sees you through the blood, through the DNA of Jesus Christ. He doesn't look at you and see every failure that you do, even though I'm sure he's aware of it. He knew everything you were ever gonna do, and he chose you anyway. What's more amazing, he knew everything I was gonna do, everything I was gonna say, everything I was gonna think, every time I was gonna turn my back on him, and he chose me anyway. And now he sees me not in that failure, but he sees me in Jesus Christ. I wanna give an example of, maybe this will help us connect with that. I was thinking about this um, this week. Imagine, Imagine a husband whose wife is expecting and the complications come and and unfortunately as she goes into labor, she's in severe distress and eventually the labor, the bringing forth of this child takes her life. Now how is that 
husband, that father who loved his wife with all of his heart, who was one flesh with her, how's he going to feel about this child? Chances are, because we're human, there's going to be an array of emotions, but, but most likely, the first thing that he's going to do is the lo- he's going to have a love for this child because he's just met this child, but in this child he sees a reflection of his bride. He sees the love of his bride, of his wife. And so he begins to hold this precious child and, and see reflected in the eyes of this child his wife. And he has a love for this child that begins to grow, first of all, because of an overflow of his love for his wife, but then it becomes caught up in an even greater love for the child themselves. You see, that's how God the Father loves us. He loves us first because he loved his son who he willingly gave for us. And then in the overflow of that love for his son, he embraces you and I with the same love and invites us in and says, I want you to so enter into the love that we have as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that you're in communion, you're united to it. It begins to define who you are because I love you just as much. Do you realize that's the message of the gospel? That God loves you just as much as he loves his son, Jesus. How cool is that? How amazing is that, that God would love us in that way? Well, also with the ark, we have there on top the cherubim. The cherubim are, remember that the ark and the cherubim are an earthly copy, a shadow, a model of a heavenly reality. And we see over and over again in the scriptures that connected with the throne of God are these cherubim. In fact, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5, um, which we read earlier, it says, above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things, we cannot speak now in detail because they were too wonderful. The author of Hebrews, in, in, in what little he understood of the glory and greatness of God's throne, said he couldn't give all the details because he didn't even understand it. It was so much bigger than what he could even picture. Paul said something very similar when he said he had been caught up into the third heaven and he couldn't speak of it. It was like words won't fit. Have you ever had an experience that was so amazing that you're dumbstruck? I mean, you just can't really talk about it because you don't even know what to say. It's, it's, it, it truly is indescribable. That's what he's saying about the glory of the Lord. So above the ark are these two stationary cherubim with their wings sheltering over it, and it was a reminder. It was a picture that looked back to the Garden of Eden because after Adam and Eve sinned and God cast them out, he put two cherubim who were armed with a flaming sword to block the way to the tree of life. And the reason that he did that, it was one of his first great expressions of grace, was to prevent Adam and Eve who had already disobeyed God and ate the, tree, uh, ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Had they gone on and ate of the tree of life, 
they would not have died, and therefore there could not have been a payment made for them. There's no way to rescue them. They would have been fixed in that state of rebellion. And so God, out of love, protected his people. The cherubim there over the throne of God are not to protect God, but to protect us, to remind us of God's holiness, that he will judge rightly all things. In Ezekiel, um, the prophet sees the cherubim as well, and he sees them. It's a little bit different, so we don't know exactly what they look like. When Ezekiel sees them, they have four different faces, and they have four wings, and, and the, the ministry that they do is, is absolutely amazing. We may look at that a little bit next week just to, to talk about prayer. But, um, but I want to mostly next week try to get much more practical and less information on how you can move closer to the Lord. So those were there. And then the mercy seat. And let me, let me read to you about the mercy seat. Because the mercy seat ultimately points to Jesus Christ. Here's what God says in his word. Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. In other words, if you were to picture the holy place, what you would see is the righteousness of God, this consuming fire, is bigger than the covenant and the promise of the law, the Ten Commandments that are inside the ark. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. They point to who God is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. All have broken that covenant. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now, most of us probably have no clue what propitiation means. It means mercy seat. It means the place where a substitute was made for you and I. In fact, it could be just as well translated mercy seat in this verse as propitiation. Put forward as a mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What he's saying there is that God looks at the sacrifice. He looks at the blood that is there that Jesus offered and he sees you through it. So he sees that you and I are not where we are in progress. We are justified. We are made holy in Jesus Christ so that we can come into his presence. Now, I told you that this, this ark was about the new covenant, and there's a lot more I want to be able to unpack on that. But what I want to do first and, and where I want to end is on something just more practical. Because as Hebrews tells us, he says, listen to this. Let me just read it to you. Hebrews chapter 10. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is where the whole idea of this this series comes from. Let us move closer. That's God's invitation. He wants you to come into his presence to learn of him, to delight in him, to enjoy him, and to allow him to transform who you are, to make you the person that Jesus saved you and I to be. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God wants you to come closer. That's his invitation. In fact, that's the invitation of everything we see in the scripture is God has moved towards us so that we can come closer to him. He did what we could never do through his son Jesus so you could enjoy union with him. Let me try to make this this practical from a prayer standpoint. I ran across a a beautiful instruction on prayer um, from Francis Fenelon. And he says this, tell God all that is in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. God is inviting us into his presence because of what Jesus has done. And he says, share your heart with me. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober or instruct you. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how pride and self-love makes you unjust to others how vanity tempts you to be insincere, insincere, and how pride disguises you to yourself and others. If you pour out all of your weaknesses, all of your needs and troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. And this is the part that I really, really, really love. This is what I want to encourage us to discover. People who have no secrets from each other never want for subjects of conversation. When you're absolutely authentic with the Lord, you tell him what you're wrestling with, what your fears are, what your struggles are. He already knows them. And when you share them, the bond between you becomes even stronger. Because he is the one who can answer those fears. He can meet you in those needs. He's already demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He says, draw near, move closer so that you may learn to talk out of the abundance of your heart without worrying too much about... um, getting everything right, but simply trusting in the presence and pleasure of the Father. Lord God, 
You are a God who has done amazing things. You are perfectly holy, and yet, through your provision of Jesus, you have invited us into your presence. You've sought so many different ways to communicate your truth to us. You've given us your word. You've given us the revelation of creation. Lord, you've showed us a a glimpse of what you are like, even in the instructions and the making of the tabernacle. All of these are messages that you are using to tell us to turn to you, to return our hearts to you, to believe with all that we are that you are the one who not only can make us whole, but you are the one who knows us best and loves us most and has invited us into your presence. Lord, would you create within us a desire for you that supersedes every other desire of our life? Because that is where life is found. You came to give us life. And Lord, my prayer for each and every person here is that that is what they would discover. They would discover that you are a God who fills us with life when we find our intimacy, our identity, our communion with you. Lord, you meet each and every need in us when we trust all that we are to you. So, Lord, I pray you would work in us. You know where each and every person is right now. You know the struggles, the fears that they have. You know those who've who've not yet made that that, um, confession of trusting you as Savior and Lord. And, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them right now. And, Lord, they would just cry upon the name of Jesus. They say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to trust you. Well, for others where there's, maybe there's a struggle in our life with sin, Lord, you are the one who can overcome that. But would you meet them right where they are right now? Lord, let us not leave this place unchanged because you have promised that you will transform us when we draw into your presence through Jesus Christ. You are a God who keeps his promises. So I claim your promise and ask that you would work in our midst to draw us to your son right now in his great and mighty name. We pray and we worship.